Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. I am Nicole Kabilis. Today's episode is about autistic fixations and special interests. We're going to talk about what fixations and special interests are, the neuroscience of special interests, whether or not special interests are problematic, how to interact with someone that has a special interest, and what to do with the special interest is dangerous or violent. All right. So to begin with, what are autistic fixations or special interests? And I do have to say from a parent's point of view and having somebody who's been on the spectrum um, for a long time, this the thought on this has changed over time, right? The um, initial thought from the... Um, neurotypical community about fixations and special interests is that they were a bad thing. And now new research is saying it's actually a good thing, right? And so let's go into it. So what is a fixation or special interest? It's an intense focus surrounding a certain topic or interests. This can be very narrow, but very deep. It can, there can be more than one interest at a time, some of which of these might be interconnected with each other, but also interests can change over time. Um, interest can be so consuming that it can impact habits of eating, sleeping, and bathing, um, engaging in a flow that feels like a runner's high or meditative zen on the positive side. Um, interest, special interests can help lead to careers. They can build self-confidence, self help cope with emotions, and connect with other people that have similar interests. And having um, fixations and special interests can improve intention and social interaction and reduce anxiety. So I want to ask you something you had brought up earlier. You said that your understanding of fixations and special interests changed when you, when your son Josh got his initial diagnosis mm -hmm. versus the understanding of it today. What exactly were you told about fixations and special interests in the beginning of your autism parenting journey? Well, it was more like um, this is a distraction, right? That Joshua can't focus on anything else in school. He just wants to do X, right? Um, not realizing that that might be a way to engage Josh in um, classroom activity or discussions or conversations. So it was viewed as a uh, distraction, right? Or so, something, something that he would engage in that would not be productive in the classroom. So did that definition of fixation also impact what you did as a teacher if you had a, an autistic student that had a special interest? Oh, we'll talk about that when we get into um, you know, what, what we can do and things like that. But as far as having um, autistic, just to answer that question right now, that as far as having autistic children in my classroom, um, it didn't really, because I had um, kids who were... Um, higher on the spectrum, right? They, they had more ability. They were not um, um, impacted severely. They could, they could switch, right? So students in my classroom can switch from what they wanted to focus on to what I was doing pretty easily. And I didn't really have um, those kinds of issues in my class. So you didn't, you didn't go into it with a certain bias, did you, at that time in your life? Well, I mean, I, to be to be honest, um, it wasn't an issue for me as far as classroom management goes. Okay. Right. And so if it, if it rises to that, then I'm going to have, you know, I need to address it in some way. 
Okay. Um, so if if the child was engaging in something, and and let's say we were doing um, individual work or something like that, um, if I could check on him and you know he was doing what he needed to do, but he was listening to music or something, you know that's fine, not a problem. So I really didn't have an issue. Um, with it yet, but I also didn't have, like in the beginning, since we're talking about this, I didn't have a clear understanding of what the advantages of those fixations and special interests were and how to how to dovetail that into my classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Now I have that, that, that uh, knowledge, and um, we're going to share that later in the episode. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's important for teachers, therapists, parents, everybody to understand that no definition of autism or really, you know, anything, any label, if you will, um, is fixed. It, it evolves with our understanding of what it is and it evolves with that person living with that um, identity, being able to speak very openly and transparently about what that's like. And so I think it's important that if we stay informed in the present moment today, you know, have some open-mindedness that that definition is going to change 10 or 20 years from now. And then that, that changing definition will ultimately help you in that caregiving role. Oh, absolutely. All right. So what was your son Josh's special interest? Has it always been the same or has it changed over time? Well, okay. So in the very beginning, you know, he would be um, obsessed with like the Thomas the Tank Engine kind of thing. Love Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh, so much fun. Um, but then as he got into um, school and he couldn't bring those toys to school, uh, then it became drawing and art and drawing comics. And so he would, he would um, request to have spiral notebooks that um, he could take to school and he would just fill those notebooks up. Right. And I have boxes and boxes and boxes of um, his comics and they got better over time, I have to say. And, you know, this is what he's doing right now. So he's going to school um, as an illustrator, learning about illustration. So when we say it could lead to a career, that's definitely what he's doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'll... How about... Go ahead. Oh, um, yeah. Before I wanted to talk about my special interests. Um... It made me think of a story that I had heard from another autistic person in my life. So there was a mom who had a son who just loved playing video games. And, Mm. you know, she just could not get him off and thought he had a video game addiction and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And she was getting really hopeless about, you know, his prospects of going to college and having an independent career and whatnot. And I don't know how this came up, but the topic of uh, do, being a professional esport player mm-hmm. um, came into the field, and and I guess the mom's revelation is rather than fighting the video games, what if I just leaned into it and embraced it? And right. you know, within the realm of game design, there's you know you can make the game, you can play the game professionally, mm-hmm. you can make concept art for the game, you can mm-hmm. review the game, you can be a content right, creator right. on YouTube. There's you know, it's not like one specific route. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how they got into the topic of esports because maybe maybe the the person playing the video games was into specific games that are competitive esport games. But mm-hmm. now he's one of the most um highly acclaimed professional esport players and he makes like a huge amount of money doing there you that. Go. And I there forget you go. his name. 
Um, but like he went pro at 20 years old doing professional esports. And who would have ever thought from a parenting perspective that that would even be a possibility? But, you know, I think it just kind of validates that point that like, you know, it, it really can lead to a career, even if that career is like kind of out of left field. Um, mm -hmm. We also went to a neurodiversity in the workplace conference um, in March. And one of the keynote speakers is an autistic public speaking magician. Mm -hmm. And he talked about like, you know, how magic was one of his special interests. And he really appreciated his parents like supporting him to go into something that didn't really have like a black and white, right, like, yeah. here's how you make money doing professional magic work. And, you know, so it's it it really can be anything as long as you have some creativity in the in the vision of whatever that career is. Absolutely. Okay. So how about you, Nicole? What are your special interests? Yeah. Um, so I, my husband made a joke recently. He goes, I think your special interest is autism. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is, well, it, that sure. feels really meta. Like your autistic special interest is autism. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess it's funny because I, I was a lot like Josh. I was always making art. Um, I would make art in my spare time time at every waking moment, but I never felt like art was my special interest. I feel like art was a vehicle for me to explore my special interests, which I would say for the longest time was kind of social justice related. I was, mm -hmm. uh, I had a period in my life where I was really into anti-bullying. So I mm -hmm. made a lot of artwork on that topic. To me, I feel like if you have a special interest in art, um, there's the special interest in like the process of making art, like learning how to improve your technical ability. And then mm -hmm. there's like the special interest in like the field of artwork that you want to go into. So, you know, having a special interest in art is so, so broad and it's not mm -hmm. just necessarily like the creation of artwork. Right. Um, so lately everything that I do is around the topic of autism. Um, mm -hmm. And honestly, I love it. Um, my artwork, uh, which if you guys don't know, uh, I I create artwork for every podcast episode and I write poetry for every podcast episode. So a lot of my creative work, uh, both abstract and realistic, is about the autistic experience. My poetry is about the autistic experience. Mm -hmm. I am researching these podcast episodes <laughs> And right. love doing research for the episodes. And then I, you know, want to have a career as a counselor for the autism community. And I feel like I have an advantage, not only because I, you know, live with autism, but I have just gone down this rabbit hole of learning what it means to be autistic. Mm -hmm. And that has given me so much meaning and purpose in my life. And and my passion is definitely autism advocacy. Um, another special interest is uh social skills now okay this one is kind of tricky because i feel like it was a special interest that was caused by trauma when you're told your entire life that you know you're not a socially emotionally intelligent person and you're socially awkward because you're autistic mm. it leads to this feeling of shame that you don't mm. have good social skills so the way i coped with that is i would just obsessively read about social skills and it and it paid off. Um, I remember when I was in high school and I was really struggling with making friends, I hit the books 
And I read everything that there was to know about social emotional intelligence and, okay. you know, a book that really impacted me at that time in my life was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Hmm. And it really got me far in life. And it got to the point where people were shocked that I was autistic because my social skills were so strong. And so hmm. it's ironic because the thing that doesn't make me autistic is actually the product of my autism. Um, I think, and, and then that special interest really, I don't know, evolved into a lot of different things, especially when I became a teacher, I started reading books about leadership, mindfulness, mm -hmm. conflict resolution, mental health, equity and inclusion. Um, I'm on a really big kick about reading about anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that that obsession about really understanding social skills has made me an effective educator. I think it will make me an effective counselor. Um, now, I do think it's a double-edged sword because even though this special interest served me to have a better social life and create an equitable, inclusive space for my students, mm -hmm. um, it also triggers a lot of social perfectionism. Mm. And it's this feeling that I'm never good enough as I am. Mm. And one of the things that I had struggled with for most of my life was when do I earn the right as an autistic person to make social mistakes? Because it feels like when a neurotypical person makes social mistakes, like there's grace. But when an autistic person makes mistakes, there's judgment about their social emotional intelligence. And so I took that very personally. Mm -hmm. And and it, it just got to the point where I was like this workaholic when it came to my social skills education. And it wasn't until probably like, in my 30s now granted like i'll be 32 this year so like in the last two years that i've been in my 30s like i've i've really reflected on that a lot and i've realized that that special interest is not healthy for me to have it it doesn't make me acceptable with who i am now i i always strive to be better mm -hmm. and it also reinforces a stigma about autism and so rather than somebody making a stigmatizing or stereotyping comment about my autism, instead of taking that on and being like, all right, I'm going to do research, I'm mm. now able to say, hey, let me challenge you on your stereotypical notions of autism. Mm. So okay. again, like, I'm grateful for that fixation. And at the same time, it's, it's a fixation that I'm working to release because I realize how it's, how it's been unhealthy in my life. Mm, okay. Okay. So how does the uh, fixations and special interests impact your work as a teacher? So I had a hard time splitting my attention multiple ways between grading, lesson planning, and classroom management. I chose to get my entire lesson plan dunning, uh, done over mm -hmm. the summer that I could reduce my workload during the school year. And sure. when I tell you I fixated on my lesson planning, like that was my mm -hmm. whole summer, but it was nice because that was the only thing that I had to do. And when okay. you're a new teacher and especially like when, especially when you're an elective teacher and you're taking mm -hmm. on like a lot of classes, mm -hmm. beginning to advance classes, that's a lot of classes to prepare for. Now, Absolutely. there are some teachers that like to, lesson plan like two weeks ahead because they don't like um they don't like planning for the whole year i mm -hmm. can't do that i just feel like when it comes to lesson planning 
I like to hyper-focus and I like to hyper-focus where that's the only responsibility I have. And I don't have to worry about grading or classroom management or mm -hmm. I don't know, emailing people, that kind right, of right. thing. Um, and I, I will say that it is hard to hyper fixate on that um, because it's a, you know, it, if you make that decision to lesson plan your whole summer, it really does take up your whole summer if you allow it Definitely. to. Yeah, and, sure. and I'm a very impatient person and I feel like it's, it's this marathon of like, when am I going to get to the end? But once you do, mm -hmm. it's so nice to not have to worry about that during the school year. And I will say uh, the one time I didn't do this was when COVID happened and I had just gotten a new job and, mm -hmm. and I was supposed to teach ceramics and jewelry, which couldn't have been offered during COVID with the remote teaching. Right. And so it was one of those situations where I just couldn't plan ahead mm. and I had to do it during the school year and I absolutely hated it. And I got to say, right, right. a lot of my coworkers admired my ability to just get it all done in the summer. And yeah. I'm not saying like that's what all teachers should do because some teachers really need that summer break. Definitely. But that was that was what looked that that's what best helped me. Um so the autistic brain locks onto a goal with a special interest or fixation, causing mental absorption of that task and tunnel vision. The brain has a really hard time letting go or stepping away until the task is completed. That's very hard to do when you are working on a very large project, such as lesson planning for the entire school year. So I remember if I took that on during the summer, if I if I had to leave that lesson planning fixation in order to run an errand or go to the grocery store or whatever, it was hard because I just, and it wasn't even because I loved lesson planning and I, and I was right. engrossed in, I love the, and don't get me wrong. I do love the projects I planned for, mm -hmm. but it it's the, I felt like the fixation was uh, crossing off things on my to-do list and it's really hard to delay that. And I don't know if that's like a fixation on like routine and order. But yeah, for me, it's like, I just, I felt so much physiological and mental discomfort if I had to step away from something that I just wanted to put all my energy into just to finish, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, has to do with um, how you think and how how we think. So um, as a neurotypical person, um, I am not a linear thinker, right? I am a sporadic spatial thinker. I do different projects. I might engage in five topics at one time, and I never finish one completely and go on to the next one. Um, I dabble in this one, then I stop and I get bored, and I dabble over here and I do this. And so, you know, working with a team of teachers trying to lesson plan together, uh, that drove them crazy. <laughs> that drove them crazy. So just just to to show the the kind of differences in um in that and that kind of linear linear thinking for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, and to to add to that real quick, I actually remember when I lesson planned for classes. So my last two and a half years of teaching, I had the entire drawing and painting program, which involved basically like seven classes, mm -hmm. level one through four, honors, right. AP, and a special needs art class. And I did not jump around. I actually like 
hyper fixated on like, mm -hmm. all right, I'm going to do all the lesson planning mm -hmm. for level one and then level two or right. Even within that class, it's like, all right, today I'm gonna I'm gonna create all of the artwork mm -hmm. for the lessons for level one. And then the next day I'm gonna only focus on rubrics. Like I can't jump around right, between right. topics. Like that that just agitates me. I'm sure for some it does. Reason. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Okay, so that goes into the neuroscience of special interest, just real briefly. So this is based on an article in the online magazine Spectrum by Emily Labor Warren from 2021. We'll put the link of this into um, the show notes because I found it really interesting. Um, if there isn't a pull towards people, right, the part of the brain used to engage in social situations, engage in concepts or objects, right? And there could be a, this neurological reward system for more interested towards intrinsic, intrinsic motivators than interpersonal connections. Right, and so area, there's areas of the brain that determine the intensity of all consumption of the special interests. So that kind of raises the question that was in the article, um, do special interest, interests fill an absence engaging social brain areas that are otherwise idle, or are autistic people simply born more oriented towards certain objects or ideas and because of that orientation are less inclined towards the social world. So we know that people on the spectrum um, do have challenges um, thinking and um, existing and manipulating in the social world, right? They would rather be um, in their own heads doing something that they're interested in, which completely makes, makes sense. So special interests activate key language areas of the brain as well. Mm-hmm. So are special interests problematic? Should they be fixed or discouraged? As much as possible, incorporate special interests into routines, activities, chores, any sort of daily lifestyle, rather than using it as a reward for good behavior. Mm. And I think that that can happen a lot in, I don't know, education settings or parents oh, might use that as like, you can't play video games until you do your homework, which, you know, that's not an autistic thing. That's just all kids. Right. Um, and also, you know, I think certain types of therapists that work with people with autism might use special interests as, you know, well, if you're going to get these tasks done that are sometimes meant to mask autistic behavior, your reward is engaging in your special interests. And that's not that's not healthy to do. Mm hmm. Special interest clubs at school help students with autism connect with their peers that have uh, similar interests. Career training can help you look at the strengths and interests of a special interest to put towards different career options. And I will say with the tr career training thing, I don't know if career trainers are necessarily looking at eSport as a potential option. So what I would say is use them as an option and, you know, if there are other types of careers as a young person that you see that other people don't see, you know, bring that up and talk about it with a career coach. An obsession right. is a special interest that can create complications for the person's quality of life. So um, there is a questionnaire called the Ambitious About Autism Questionnaire. I actually don't remember where I. F oh, maybe I made this. Um, Regardless, obsessions can create obstacles, and the way that you can determine if your special interest is creating a barrier is ask yourself these questions. 
Is the behavior causing the person unhappiness, but they are unable to stop? Is it creating an issue for other people? Is it undermining their ability to learn? Are they not able to concentrate on anything else? Mm-hmm. Is it limiting their ability to make new friends or meet new people? In my opinion, these are probably some reasons on when special interests become problematic. Again, more questions that you can ask yourself. Is mm-hmm. there extreme distress, such as anxiety, depression, etc., caused when there is transition away from the special interest? Are there dysregulated symptoms of withdrawal caused by stepping away from that special interest? Mm-hmm. Are there physical health issues created from hours of engaging in a special interest, such as eye strain, insomnia, right. posture problems, not eating or bathing, urinary mm-hmm. tract infections, or constipation from not going to the bathroom for long periods of time? I'm guilty of that. Not that I had like health problems, but right. I mean, if I'm hyper fixated, like the whole lesson planning thing, mm-hmm. I could start at six in the morning and by 2.30, I'm like, oh, I haven't eaten. I should probably eat. Um, wow. But I had worked with a woman um, for a period of time. I was I was working with an autism startup group and and pretty much everybody on our team was on the autism spectrum. And the founder of the organization, she would hyper focus on her business work for 16 hours and wouldn't take a break. That's a lot. Um, and I don't, I mean, there comes a point where my body is definitely able to give signs like, Hey, you're hungry. Hey, mm-hmm. you know, you need to go to the bathroom. I don't know how you can make it the entire day and not even be aware that you haven't eaten or gone to the bathroom. That's mm-hmm. pretty extreme Yeah, and it's not healthy. Um, yeah, for sure. but I, but I do want to make it clear. It's not like we're forcing ourselves to do it. It's it's like we're in this zone. It's like a runner's high. Mm-hmm. So is the special interest causing the person to live a reclusive hermit life? Does the person never leave their house because they're just engrossed in that special interest? Is this special interest creating a barrier from engaging in relationships with family, a romantic partner, and close friends? For example, choosing not to spend time with these people in favor of engaging in a special interest. Is the special interest creating barriers with adult independence and executive functioning, such as paying bills, cleaning a house, checking emails, returning phone calls, waking up on time to an alarm, going to an appointment, Mm -hmm. etc.? Yeah, so those are all really good, important questions for the person with autism to ask themselves, as well as, you know, parents and caregivers supporting that person. The way that I deal with fixations and special interests is I make sure to prioritize movement in my day. Mm. My fixations cause me to live a sedentary life. So it's important that there is time in my day spent on doing some sort of exercise. Mm -hmm. I make it optional on whether or not I want to go outside. And, you know, that exercise doesn't have to be something that pushes me beyond my limits or makes me right, uncomfortable right. in a sensory way. Sometimes it's like I just need to go on a walk or right. I need to do Tai Chi. You know, really, again, the goal is just being able to move, being able to have that uh, conscious relationship with my body. Because when you get fixated, y- you get emotionally and mentally completely disconnected from your body. Mm-hmm. And 
Sometimes I need to do a grounding exercise or do a mini meditation so that I can physically and emotionally bring closure to one activity in preparation for another. We're going to have an episode that talks about transition stress. Fixations Mm. are a, a really big part of that transition stress. And I will say that there's like a biological response when you are removed from that special interest. And there have been people with autism that have talked about their experience with addiction and how, you know, the chem- the brain chemistry of addiction is similar to fixation. Um, your brain just locks onto it and really has a hard time letting go. So I do think it's important, at least for me, that I'm able to remind myself mentally and physically that it's time to bring closure and and transition because if i if i move too quickly out of that i mean and especially like i think a lot of people who have fixations like let's say i'm lesson planning and i need to go to an appointment i'm lesson planning like up until the very last minute that i need to leave which isn't mm. healthy because right. then i'm driving to the the appointment feeling resentful that i'm not working on my fixation so and then there's the other issue of like if I get so fixated and then I need to locate my purse and I can't find my purse or mm-hmm. maybe I've been fixating and I didn't, you know, I've been in my pajamas all day and I haven't dressed myself, like then right. that creates another level of overwhelm. And so I do think it's really important for there to be some sort of mindfulness presence practice to to bring closure to say, all right, we're going to come back to this. It's okay. Mm-hmm you know, we're going to transition from one thing to the other. So that's really helped me. Also, I try to determine what times in the day or week work best for me to do adult independence tasks so I don't have to interrupt my fixations. Mm. Usually that's Sundays. Having a timer can help me to redirect my focus on grounding myself for transitions. If I don't allow my mind and my body time to transition from the activity that I'm fixated on, I'll have anxiety and emotional withdrawal. Interesting. So all of those are really good ways to think about how you uh, manage that, right? Because you could, you know, and I saw this with my son, just take a deep dive and this is all that he wants to do. He'll, you know, it's like, okay, we need to get you outside, Mm -hmm. right? You need to take a walk. Yeah, I was trying to think about an example of what that feels like. I think when, when you're addicted to video games, Mm-hmm. And, you know, your parent comes in and it's like, all right, it's time for dinner. Come on, one more level. Right. Like, exactly. I can't save. I can't stop. And, they, right. and it's like. I've never heard that saying, before. And it's like, but then they just, it, it never stops. It just continues right. because there's this uh, dopamine reaction mm-hmm. and, and you don't want that dopamine to go down. So, so that's why I think that, you know, the mindfulness really helps. Absolutely. Um, because. Because there's this high that you don't want to go down from, but mm-hmm. when you kind of allow yourself to slowly come down mm-hmm. and transition, it makes it easier. So anyway, um, what was Josh's, was Josh's special interest ever problematic when it came to school, house chores, or adult independence? Yeah, so, you know, it, Josh would rather be in his room drawing, right, than engaging in chores at home or or, you know. Um, activities at school or something like that. So yeah, this could be an issue. And so, you know, we had to um, negotiate. Okay, so this is, you know, we have times in the day where things need to get done. 
And so this is the time of day that I need you to be aware of. It's going to be the same time every day um, that you need to do chores, either pick up your room or, you know, whatever, whatever it happens to be. We all have, we all have chores. They have to be done. Um, this is going to be, we, we try to build consistency, right? So at two o'clock, this is the time. And so as we did this, then it became easier. If I was random about it, right? And I came into a room at, you know, different times of the day or different times of the week and say, Josh, you need to do this and, and insisted on it, then it would be more of a struggle, mm-hmm. right? So it was, it would be that, okay, here you, you know, having that rational, reaching into his rational brain, right? Having that rational conversation. This is what needs to be done. This is the time of day that um, we need to do it now. And, and if that time of day didn't work, then, you know, we could say, okay, what time of day would be better? And then he could say, oh, I, I'd rather have this time of day. Okay, so you said, you know, at, at 5 o'clock you're going to do this, and you're going to spend 20 minutes on this. Okay, so we both agreed on this, right? Right. Okay, so once I got that kind of buy-in, it was a, so much easier. But mm-hmm. um, coming to that realization uh, took a while. Yeah, and I think one thing that you brought up that was kind of interesting is you know, comparing it to your lesson planning where you identified that you're very sporadic and you like that randomization. And I think Mm -hmm. that that can really affect parenting because if, if you have a parent that's not very structured and doesn't Mm -hmm. like structure and you're parenting a child that needs structure, that can create a lot of incongruency and tension. And that can also um, create an issue with the child disconnecting from that special interest to do something that they don't want to do. So I do think that that, the temperament of the parents' desire for organization is just as important when it comes to getting the child to do things that they want them to do. Yeah. And like you said, realizing that your child um, needs that consistency um, and that structure, Mm -hmm. right? They just need that. Um, How about you? Did you have um, problems with special interests or... um, Becoming a problem with school or house chores or your independence so or is getting in your way? I think it's an interesting thing to answer because you can answer it from the perspective of a child and then the perspective of an adult. I think regardless of whether you're autistic or not, most kids don't want to do chores. Mm-hmm. And I, I think really the solution for that is if you're going to get kids to do chores, some sort of structure whether that be a financial structure, a time structure. Um, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but basically just making it a norm in the house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, really makes a difference. And and it has to be really established early on. And, and I think parents can sometimes break that because they're dealing with a child who is constantly overstimulated, hyper-focused, mm-hmm. and they they pick their battles. But the problem is if you don't, if you don't get that child to get normed on chores, then it's just going to be an uphill battle for them to take that responsibility when they're an adult. So absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, much like Josh, I was the kid that made art all the time. And mm-hmm. I don't want to say that my special interest created an obstacle when it came to chores, only because there really wasn't a system in my house where my brother and I had to do chores. Either my parents did the chores or we had a cleaning lady growing up. She did the chores. I mean, she even did the laundry. So we were just kind of dismissed from taking that responsibility. And that really had nothing to do with 
my level of functioning as an autistic person. Um, mm -hmm. I was also really studious. So mm -hmm. even though, you know, in my every spare waking moment, I would love to do art, but I also took school very seriously. So I guess like I would put school first and I would get everything done so then I could enjoy my special interest uninterrupted. And I think a lot of kids with autism kind of go in the reverse where all they want to do is their special interest and they procrastinate on their schoolwork. I was the opposite. Right, right. I, I felt like I can't thoroughly enjoy my fixation if I'm having uh, anticipatory anxiety about putting off my schoolwork. But again, part of it was like, I liked school and I liked the response. Mm -hmm. I like the responsibility of getting my homework done. And I'm such a to-do list person that right. I felt like I got a lot of pleasure out of just, you know, getting things done on my checklist. I even delayed, you know, socializing. So like a lot of people will do homework on Sundays so then they can have Friday and Saturday to enjoy their life. And for me as a kid, Fridays and Saturdays were my homework days, partially because I didn't have a lot of friends and no desire to hang out with friends. But right. I liked being able to just get my schoolwork done. So Sunday, the day that I usually had transition stress with going to school, that can be my me time, you know, being able to focus on my special interests. Mm -hmm. um, and when I did engage in those things, I spent a majority of time in my room, either playing make-believe, which by the way, I I did the make-believe thing up until my senior year of high school, uh, writing stories, making art, or playing video games. And I'm not sure if it was a special interest so much as, as it was that I enjoyed my time alone. It gave me right. a break from social interaction and allowed me to delve into my creative world. Mm -hmm. um, and I do remember, like, if I was in my, my make-believe and I'm acting out a story or something and my parents knocked on my door saying dinner's ready or mm -hmm. hey we got to get going for a family event i was pissed about <laughs> getting interrupted okay. and i don't know how much of that was my autism or how much of it was being a moody teenager mm -hmm. it was probably both i actually both. remember yeah. i remember making a a little door sign that was like trying to let my parents know like do not come in like this that's is funny. my fixation time. And my parents were like, well, that's pr pointless because it was on all the time. <laughs> so funny. like it was supposed Never to let them know down. like, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. It was supposed to let them know like, hey, now's a good time where you can come in and talk to me. Mm -hmm. But there was never a good time to come in and talk to me. Right. That's um, awesome. And I guess like when it came to being in class, I didn't feel like I had any um, special interests that I guess created an obstacle with my my actual engagement in the classroom or listening to lectures. Although I did draw in my sketchbook and you know, sometimes it helped me focus and other times it was a way for me to check out of the class. Mm -hmm. And my sketchbook was confiscated. I bet. And I was upset at the time mm -hmm. and now being a former teacher I was like, okay, now I understand why it was confiscated. Right. So the the sketchbook thing is really tricky because sometimes it can be a fixation and sometimes it is used as a tool for focus. Mm -hmm. um, and then other than that, I guess when it comes to being an adult, um, like I said, I, I'm a very strong to-do list kind of person. I like crossing things off. And I, I also hate jumping around between different tasks. So we've talked about in the podcast, like 
I I just I can't do the the technology and the social media and the right. and the making of the artwork and writing the script right. and it's just easier for me to hyper focus on one thing. Um, yeah. But I don't feel like those things impact chores. I've actually learned that I really enjoy cleaning, and I'm very prompt with bills. And mm -hmm. I think a, a big part of my special interest not being an obstacle is because like I get so much anticipate Patori anxiety about putting it on that I'm just right. like, let's just get it over with. Yeah. Um, but I think what has helped me is being able to have a designated day, especially when I was working, of when I was going to take care of those responsibilities. And Sunday ultimately ended up being the best day for me to do that. Mm. Some people don't want to take care of that on their weekends. So I think if you are that very like structured, black and white, needing routine person, Mm -hmm. I do think it's really helpful to designate time as if you're designating an appointment to right. be able to get those adult independence responsibilities done or start it at the beginning of your day so that you don't wake up and the mm -hmm. first thing you do is engage in your special interest. Because once you're engaged, it's hard to get out of that. It's over. Yeah. That it is sense. over. Yeah. Okay. How about um, dealing with a student's fixation or special interest in your classes? How'd you deal with that? Uh, so the nice thing about art is that the topics are very open-ended. There, There's a lot of discussion in education about if you have an autistic student who just, like, especially in art, do or die, they're making SpongeBob art or they're making Thomas the Tank Engine art, and they will right. not engage unless they do that. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I had a lot of that issue I actually, I think I had more neurotypical students that were like, I'm not going to make art unless I did this one thing. Yeah, um, for sure. But, but the nice thing about an art class, especially when the, the project is more conceptual and open-ended, who cares if they make art about their special interest? I think art teachers tend to, to make it an issue if they're trying to focus on something that's building a technical skill. And... What's hard is that when we're a teacher, we have this holistic understanding of, you know, the goal of this project is to build this certain type of creative skill, but the kids don't care about that skill or, or some do, but most right. of them are like, I want to make whatever I want to make. And so there's right. this dance of finding like a compromise. And that's just the reality of being an art teacher. Um, mm -hmm. But again, like, I don't feel like. I, I had a student whose special interest was so rigid that I had to, you know, give up what I had to do in order to meet them with their needs. Now, mm. what I will say I struggled with more were students on the autism spectrum that felt like an art class would allow them to draw whatever they wanted. Right. They got the very frustrated. Time. Yeah, well, and I think that that's just hard in general for teenagers mm -hmm. But I think that autistic students in particular get really rigid about the feeling that an art class is the place where they get to express however they want to. Mm -hmm. So they those particular students got very frustrated when they had to work on a project that they didn't like, made them work on a skill that was out of their comfort zone, work with materials they didn't like, or made them use a technique that wasn't in line with their personal style. and they really dug their feet when it came to doing artwork on their terms. Interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think, I think neurotypical students will do the same thing. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, it, I had a student who really wisely explained it that when you're in high school and you're losing yourself because there are these adult responsibilities you have to take on, art is the mm-hmm. one place where it's all about you. That it's about, you know, mm. I don't get to have people control what I do. I'm finding my freedom. Right. And when you lose that freedom in an art class, it's like the last straw. And so mm. teenagers are just scrambling for that last amount of control and autonomy that they feel like they don't have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most some students will really, you know, challenge you about that. And I can't tell you how many times I had students that were like, you know, art is about free speech and art is about doing whatever you want and you're oppressing us. And it's like, you don't understand the point of an art class. Like you're supposed to do things out of your comfort zone to get better. And so, you know, they get, they get, they get very protective of their right to autonomy and no more, uh, how do I put this? People with autism really assert their need for autonomy if they believe so strongly in what they want to do as artists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I will tell you, like, I had a student who didn't like my projects, didn't like doing it in the classroom. And we had a mm-hmm. lot of conversations about, you know, like, I, I know you're not happy about it, but like, this is what's expected of you. And it got to the point where the student was like, I'm going to free draw whether you like it or not. And so I think that that black and white thinking of I'm going to do art my way no matter what right. is very characteristic of an autistic fixation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and some students, like, regardless of other staff being involved, like, they'll just be like, nope, I'm doing this my way. You know, they think they're an art rebel. Mm. So, um all of this being said, when I teach students with autism, I don't feel that an art class is always the best fit. And I know in saying that parents might get really disappointed because, you know, their child really struggles with school. They hate school, but they love art and they want to find something that gives them happiness. But I do want to clarify that the purpose of an art class is to grow in your technique and conceptual thinking. And that requires you to get out of your comfort zone. And art classes are also ways that students learn how to take direction from creative professionals if they want to do art for a career, from client commissions to creative directors at, say, an animation studio. The reality of being a professional artist is that you make art for other people rather than yourself. And if a student really struggles with that because they want to create art on their own terms, then sometimes an art class isn't always the best fit because there is a little bit of sacrifice of autonomy in order to grow your your technical skill as an artist and advance your professionalism. Now, that's not to say that those types of artists shouldn't pursue art education. It just means that those types of personalities might be better suited for YouTube tutorials or being self-taught or you know, maybe working with an art mentor who creates art that's very similar to what the person's interests are. So it's not that that person shouldn't pursue art or an art education. It just means that the environment of acquiring an art education might not be conducive to that neurodiverse person's 
desires for their creative growth. And, and I can't make that decision as the teacher. I think sometimes the student has to realize that on their own based on their level right. of satisfaction with the class. Um, anyway, I didn't have an issue with students drawing while I was giving instruction, if that helped them focus. But what I noticed was that my students had a hard time transitioning from working on their free drawing doodles to the class project. There would always be pushback that they wanted to finish a certain detail and that they would get back to working on their class project when they were ready. Sometimes they would get so absorbed in their own drawing that they would need support to redirect back to the class project. And, it, and again, it goes back to that, even though they love art, it doesn't mean that they wanna do your art project. Um, right. Other times they would use their personal drawings as a way to avoid working on the class project. And I think what I notice when general educators get frustrated about students, you know, drawing in their sketchbooks during their class, it's the same thing. I don't think people have a problem with, you know, using drawing as a tool for focus as long as mm -hmm. the student isn't using that as a way to escape engaging in the class. And and trust me, as right. I said before, even in an art class, that can be a problem. For sure. So Brett was, and as, what was as your, educator, in, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to go um, with that. As an educator, we don't always know the difference, right? Is somebody mm -hmm. doodling in their, their sketchbook because that helps them focus and they're listening uh, versus they're escaping. I mean, we can always call on them like, Hey, what did I just say? Or what was the most important point that I just mentioned? Or what do you think of this? I mean, we could do all, obviously do that kind of thing. So while I'm yeah. in to go into that question, it's, you know, do you know, do you know your student? Can you have that um, conversation with your student? Mm -hmm. Do you have any other experience working with autistic students that had special interests and fixations in your social studies classes? So, yeah, the idea is would be to, you know, hopefully dovetail that into whatever research that we were doing. Right. So maybe they like to um, work on the computer and they have graphic skills or whatever. So if we're doing a project that would engage in that kind of behavior, um, then that would be good. It's like, OK, this is the time to really dive into the creative part of this. And so this is going to be awesome for you. This is going to be great um, if it. So you try to you try to find that match with what what we're doing. You know, you match their special interest to what we're doing, either as like the product product of a of a project, for example, or something like that. So where they can be an expert um, and then they can kind of teach other other kids about how to do this. That would be an mm -hmm. awesome way. And if that didn't work, then um, typically, you know, being trying to be consistent and uniform at the class, it's like, all right, we have a block schedule. It's an hour and a half class. Um, we're, we got to get X, Y, and Z done today. And if, if we have any time at the end of class, typically 10 minutes or so, um, all students can do have that that personal time and do whatever they want as long, as long as they're not distracting others. And then that would be a way for them to engage in their special interest as an, an accommodation for all kids and not just those on the spectrum. Yeah, I'll also add going back to the the topic of students drawing, whether it's general ed electives. Um, I actually thinking back to my own experience with it, I would say 85% of the time if I was drawing, I wasn't using drawing as a way to focus. I was trying to avoid doing the class time. And so it got me thinking, 
I do think teachers need to have conversations with students about the difference between drawing as a form of focus and when the drawing becomes a distraction. And there's a website called uh, Verbal to Visual, and it focuses on the topic of sketch noting. And I think kids need to, you know, learn about how to use drawing as a way to support the learning process rather than escape from the learning process. And I think that that can be a really great way uh, to, to use a special interest to engage rather than escape. Absolutely. No, that's good. Good idea. Okay. So that goes into some other things. What, what can we do as teachers or facilitators to um, interact with somebody that has a special interest? So as much as possible, right, this is, you know, communicating with that child, um, you know, what is their special interest knowing that, right? And then allowing that person to talk about their special interests, like kind of, like I said, you're the expert right now, explain to what, to us what this means. Um, people with autism often feel restricted or shamed about their interests. When they talk at length, it's, um, it's a release for them and they enjoy doing it. So I had one student who went on and on about CRISPR. It's like, oh my gosh, this, this kid really knows, this student really knows about CRISPR. And it became, it became a research project. So that was awesome. And then he got up and he had no problems or less problems um, public speaking because that was an issue for him. But when he was talking about CRISPR, man, he was going to town. So the, uh, the challenge was to um, keep him to the time limit, <laughs> right? It's like, you only have eight minutes to talk about this. You, you, know, you have to practice. Um, all this is good information. Now the skill is to narrow all that information down to what do we really, really need to know um, and outlining that. So that was, that was an awesome um, experience. So another thing that they could do is write down questions that prompt deeper discussion about that special interest. Um, and the neurotypical listener may need to respond with active listening strategies as to not feel bored or, or get uh, or drop off. So what, what's interesting here is like, okay, if you have um, practice in your classroom where um, you're, you're working on communication, right, and having kids in pairs, right, one person speaks and the other person listens, and then they kind of reflect what they've heard after um, two minutes or so. I mean, that would be a good way for the autistic child to feel vol- involved and validated with their special interests. Um, you can ask a person with autism to be the teacher, right? We, we talked about that if the concept goes over someone's head. Um, encourage finding relationships and social communities founded on those personal interests. Um, just because two people with autism do have special interests doesn't mean they always can talk about those because they might be um, have very different outtakes on, on what those special interests are. So again, you can find people either neurotypical or on a spectrum that share those special interests. Um, engage in social media discussion groups um, or connect with other content creators about that special interest. Certainly there's a lot of stuff online. Um, autistic people can might need support with transitioning out of a conversation with somebody that they are feel that they're rambling in too long. So again, Nicole, you talked about the use of timers that might provide some structure so the conversation isn't um, too long for the person on the spectrum. After the timer goes off, for example, the autistic person can ask the question um, of the other person. And the goal then is to um, learn how to have a conversation about something in a way that two people can equally contribute to, which is always Mm -hmm. positive. Yeah. The timer has helped me both with fixations and perseverations. We're going to talk about perseverations in our next episode. Um, But I also remember like when I was applying for grad school, 
and they said, oh, you have uh, two minutes to answer a certain question. It was kind of like an interview question and, and we didn't have a script and mm -hmm. we didn't have time to prepare for that question. And so even though the proctor had a timer and was looking at that timer, I also had a, a timer on my phone and I would constantly be looking at the phone to make sure that I wasn't going over. So if I had the structure of a timer and I was able to constantly look at it rather than feeling caught off guard, like, oh, the timer goes off or somebody's interrupting me, like there's this feeling of agitation. But once you have that sense of structure of this is how much time you're allotted and that's it, it allows me to be more mindful of what I'm sharing with other people. And, mm -hmm. you know, even when it comes to like my anxiety episodes and I'm perseverating on something, my husband's done a really good job of setting a boundary and saying, I'm going to listen to you for an hour and then we're done talking about it. Okay. And, and I think that not only is it healthy for him, but it's also really healthy for me. It just, mm -hmm. um, and I think those boundaries need to be explicitly stated, at least, you know, if you mm -hmm. have that close relationship. So I, I agree with you that I think timers can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. And like you said earlier, that if you are trying to educate somebody on a special interest, how do you narrow it down to its most essentials? And right. how do you do it in an engaging way? Mm -hmm. yeah, all right, all so those are skills, yeah. What do you do if the person's special interest is dangerous or violent? An example would be a special interest around mass shootings, murder stories, true crime, all that kind of stuff. Does, have a, does having a special interest in those regards cause concerns that that person will be homicidal? This is a relevant topic because the, there were two very famous school shooters, Adam Lamza from Sandy Hook and Nicholas Cruz uh, from Parkland, who were at least Adam Lamza was confirmed to be on the autism spectrum. Nicholas Cruz is certainly neurodiverse. I think he was confirmed to have ADHD and was suspected to be autistic. So there's been a lot of community fear, especially when these shootings happen, that autistic people have a tendency towards violence and are at a higher risk of instigating a, a mass shooting. In the book, All the Weight of Our Dreams, Lydia Exe Brown had a special interest of terrorism in high school. And they were called into the principal's office out of concern that they would be a school shooter once teachers saw that there was this special interest in, in terrorism. Mm -hmm. And another complicating layer to that equation is that Lydia is a person of color. Mm. Lydia's interest in terrorism was actually about preventing it, not causing terrorist attacks. The reason I want to bring this up and, and the reason Lydia also shared this story is that just because a person has a special interest in violent topics doesn't mean that they have an interest in harming people. They may want to learn how to prevent it or understand the psychology of somebody that wants to do harm. To that, I would say respect their space, but be on alert. Pay attention to red flags that would indicate violence towards others. Like any special interest, initiate a curious, curious non-judgmental conversation about it to see where the root motivation behind the special interest lies. Granted, the person may feel afraid of being judged or cause anxiety that they are homicidal, 
if the person doesn't want to have a conversation about it, even with a trusted person, that would be a cause for concern. And then have a conversation about how a dangerous or violent special interest could be perceived by others, even if there isn't any intent of harm. So again, if we take somebody who has an interest in mass shootings and they're having this hyper in, hyper fixated interest and the goal is say they want to be a police officer, they're interested in uh, anti-gun activism, that kind of thing, it might be wise for a school professional to say, we understand your intention mm -hmm. and Please understand that from our perspective, in an attempt to keep kids safe, this mm -hmm. these are all the red flags we're looking for. So again, you you want to validate if the if the kid's being truthful, like, okay, this is I'm not doing, I'm wanting not wanting to do harm, then it's up to those professionals to say, be aware of how this may be perceived by others so that it ultimately doesn't lead to that person, you know, being arrested being in trouble or you know somebody else reacting from a place of fear so just kind of bringing that overall awareness to it yeah that makes sense especially if like you know drawings are you know based on like battles and things and there's like a lot of red ink and stuff and it's like okay let's have that conversation about it so everybody's on the same page yeah definitely all right, so this comes to the end of our episode. So just to summarize, we talked about fixations and special interests that are positive, that can be very positive and necessary for people on the spectrum. They provide intense focus surrounding on a certain topic or interests, which can be narrow and deep. Um, they can have more than one interest at a time, some of which connects, connect with each other. There might be... Um, uh, different different things that they're looking at that might one thing might lead to another thing. Um, also, interests can change over time. Um, some things to be aware about it is that these fixations can be so consuming that can that it can impact eating, sleeping, and bathing, um, engaging in a flow that. But it also can engage in flows that feels in a positive way, giving them that runner's high or meditative zen. Um, fixations um, and special interests can launch careers, build self-confidence, and help cope with emotions and connect with other people that have similar interests. And lastly, they can improve intention, social interaction, and reduce ang anxiety. Yeah, so that's what fixations and special interests are. We also talked about the neuroscience of special interests, whether or not special interests are problematic, how to interact with someone that has a special interest, and what to do if the special interest is dangerous or violent. What's our next episode? Autistic preservation. Do you want to talk about what that is? Yeah. Quick? So, I mean, we'll go into it in a ton of detail uh, next time. But I think a lot of people will get fixations and perseverations confused. A really high-level view of it is that it's the same mental engagement with the topic the big mm -hmm. difference is that fixations tend to be more positive mm. and they create like a, a happy adrenaline and perseverations tend to be about anxiety, anger, sadness, fear, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. 
subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, all that. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. And thank you for tuning in. And we will see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas. Bye.